Hello, good evening and good day everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Ask Abhijit Show, episode 141. I hope you are all doing very well. And uh, let us see, as usual, before we begin, let's see who all is on the telecast right now. I can see Parth, Avijit, Vinit, Rohit, Ayush, Samarth, Nandan, Auspicious Doomsday, CP Verma, Abhishek, the guy, Siddhant, Swapnanil, Purna, Aditi, YK, Pratham, Ayush, Shashank, Anahita, Martian, Suchita, Monish, Durga, Abhishek, Kumar Singh, Prakhar, GK, Akarsh, Harbi on Wheels, Shubhayu, Amar Nath, Oktarsh, Manish Pandya, Kostav, Lalita Ditya, Dongar Singh Chauhan, Mazar Chachar, An- Anoop, RTK, Chirag, Gitu Parna, Shri Ram, Prajwal, Manan, Azmenor, Srushti, Karan, Aritra, Daniel, Charvaka, Kumar, Ashil, Sumit, Huzi, Shri Kumar, Vladimir, Vladimirovich, Putin, Rusty, YouTube user, Shubham, Pratik, Manish, Rohit, Parth, Typical Gamer, Atharva, Arsh, and, it's, and, and lots and lots of other people. Good evening, good day to all of you, wherever you are. I hope you're doing very well and thank you for being on the show. So, uh, today we will take questions that you all have asked in the uh, comments and hopefully that will encompass all the questions that everybody, hopefully, most of the questions that people have asked, you know, the major ones, the ones that are of importance right now. Uh, so, where shall we begin? Let us begin with something that we have spoken about in the past, but uh, let's take it to the logical conclusion and uh, let's go to the UK, shall we? Okay, so I've got a couple of questions. One is by Dungar Singh Johan, the other one is by Tejas. Rishi Sunak is proving himself more British than the actual British. It's not a problem if he's working in favor of his country, but taking an anti-India step by appointing Swella, what do you think? And Tejas says, what's your opinion about Rishi Sunak? Is it in the Indian interest that an Indian origin person is the PM of the UK? How should we see it? So I think this will be the last time I answer these questions. I have obviously taken these questions before, but let's let's take it one more time because this is a new development. Rishi Sunak has recently been appointed, selected, whatever, as the Prime Minister of the UK. And lots of people in India uh, naturally are rejoicing. Yay, great for us. Rishi Sunak is the Prime Minister, Indian origin guy, first ever... First ever Indian origin person, if I'm not mistaken, first ever Hindu and so on and so forth. Indians are very happy. So with that in mind, these are good questions. Is it in the Indian interest that an Indian origin person is the Prime Minister of the UK? The Prime Minister of the UK, it doesn't matter what is his or her ethnicity, his or her gender or whatever else. Their job is to serve the interests of their nation uh, that, that that is the that is the specification that's a, that's the job description right it's to lead the country forward in the right direction whatever is best from the perspective of the uk's national interest and do everything for the uk to benefit the uk that's the that's their entire job description and that it's limited to that so uh so it doesn't really make any difference to india whether it's it's rishi sunak or or who, who was it last time liz trust was it Liz Truss, who was there for a few weeks, or if it's somebody else, it makes no difference for, for us. Yeah, of course, one could argue that if, if it is Rishi Sunak as, as opposed to somebody like, uh, let's what's his name? The, the, who's the mayor of London? Sajid Khan, Pakistani origin. So I would say that when it comes to these possibilities of 
of having two candidates A and B. Candidate A is Rishi Sunak. Candidate B is, let's say, Sajid, Sajid Javed or whatever his name is, the current mayor of London. I think overall it's it's somewhat better for us if, if it's an Indian origin person as opposed to a Pakistani origin person in the prime minister's position. Obviously, Pakistani origin people are also Indian origin people because 70 years ago, there was no Pakistan. And so we know that. So that's beside the point. So overall, it's it's uh, it could have been worse. Uh, they could have appointed somebody who is out and out anti-India. As opposed to that, we've got somebody who is at least uh, an Indian origin person. So yeah, from that perspective, it's fine. But otherwise, it makes no real difference to India. Right. I've, I've spoken in the past about the, the fact that there are various CEOs of various Fortune 500 companies in the US. Lots of these people are Indian origin people. And does that benefit India in any way whatsoever? It does not. It does not benefit India to have uh, an Indian origin person as the head of whatever Fortune 500 company, whatever Mang company or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it makes no difference to India. It doesn't benefit India in any way. Uh, they serve their their company, their corporation, and they serve the nation. And they are all US citizens. In the case of Rishi Sunak, he's a UK citizen. So he's going to serve the UK. So uh, from that perspective, it doesn't really make much of a difference. And the real question you have to ask yourself is, does the UK prime minister have any actual real power? These days, prime ministers are elected, not selected. You have uh, general elections once in a while. The last general election was won uh, by the current uh, ruling party under the stewardship or, or leadership of uh, Boris Johnson. Boris Johnson has been removed in a, in a coup because of whatever reason. The reasons don't matter. He's been removed. Then you had, uh, Sw what's her name? Uh, Liz Truss, who, Liz, Liz Truss, who was in power, who was appointed, who was put on the, on the hot seat for a while. And she's gone now. We got Rishi Sunak. So you know what? Uh, I'm not really sure how much real, genuine power the UK Prime Minister actually holds. Power is is something that's mysterious power is something that people don't really understand power comes from a variety of things and the uk prime minister doesn't really have much power it's clear that uh, their appointment is something that is done by an unknown group of people you could say it's it's the political party they belong to and they decide that so and so leader is not performing well we're going to pull her down and we're going to appoint somebody else in their place but but then, if that is the case, then why wasn't Boris Johnson made the PM again? I mean, he was in power for a while. He did not perform terribly. He certainly performed better than what's her name? What's her name, right? Let's trust. And he was supposed to throw his hat in the ring. And the last moment, he somehow pulled it out. This is the first time they say he ever pulled out of anything. You know, that's what they say about Boris Johnson. So, <laughs> so yeah, it's mysterious what made him do that. So clearly, the levers of power are being controlled from, well, somewhere else. And I think we can all guess where it, what direction it comes from. Yeah. So anyhow, so the UK Prime Minister doesn't really have any real power. And they essentially do as they are told. I think I'm sure it will make some people unhappy and they will express their unhappiness in the comments, which is fine. I'm perfectly fine with that. But it's clear the UK Prime Ministership is a revolving door, just like what they've done to Japan. Yeah. The Japanese Prime Minister comes and goes. Apart from Shinzo Abe, nobody lasted. And we, we know what happened to Shinzo Abe. Very unfortunate. Anyhow, so uh, Rishi Sunak, well, he's just he's just a figurehead, right? Uh, now, the question is, he's proving himself more British than the actual British. He appointed, he took an anti-India step by appointing, reappointing Swella Braverman to the position of the Home Secretary. 
which is the, the British equivalent of the Home Minister. So India's Home Minister is Mr. Amit Shah. And in the UK, it's uh, it's uh, this lady, uh, Swela Braverman, who is of Indian origin. And uh, and, and she was the, the Home Secretary under the previous Prime Minister as well, Liz Truss. And it was uh, Swela's uh, resignation that uh, set, in, set into motion this domino effect, which concluded the next day itself by Liz Truss herself having to resign from, from office. One day after she said that she will fight. Yeah. And then, as soon as Rishi Sunak is appointed the Prime Minister, he reappoints Swela Braverman to the same position where she clearly herself said that she made a big mistake, you know, that sort of thing. So it's clear that it's not Rishi Sunak who has appointed her. He has been asked, he has been directed to appoint Swela Braverman to this position because of whatever reason. We don't know what the reasons are. So it's not his choice. Please understand certain things, my dear friends. Rishi Sunak, forget about Rishi Sunak. Whoever is the UK Prime Minister in the 2020s, that person, he or she doesn't really have any real power. They don't even get to choose. They, they will get to select some minor positions, but the main positions will be filled by, by, by well, the decisions will be taken elsewhere, right? So it's clearly the powers that that be that have decided that that uh, Swela Braverman should be the Home Secretary. Is it an anti-India step? Step? Well, the UK isn't an important nation. It's simply a proxy of a much larger power. That's all the UK is. So what happens in the UK is not of great consequence to the world. Yes, India and the UK are are negotiating this free trade agreement and this uh, visa deal and all that, which is okay. Which is okay. Which uh, will matter to some people. But overall, from the Indian economy perspective, national interest perspective, it is not in the long term, in the larger scheme of things, a very important thing. What is really important is how India deals, uh, approaches its dealings with the superpower, the United States and other nations that are important. Right? The UK is a peripheral nation. The UK is not even a second-rate world power anymore. It's a proxy. It's, it's a vassal of the US. So, uh, yes, this lady has uh, shot, her, shot her mouth off multiple times. She herself is of Indian origin. Both parents are of Indian origin, right? So she is 100% pure-blood Indian. And she has been saying things that are, well, well, kind of derogatory towards Indians, that Indians have a habit of overstaying their UK visas and all that. Well, um, uh, how, what about the fact that the, the, the British overstayed the, in India? more than 250 years. I mean, what business did they have being in India, right? So, uh, anyhow, that, that's <laughs> that's one rebuttal you could offer to her if you are active on social media and so on. But that's fine. So, uh, she is not somebody who really matters, right? She will herself as the Home Secretary. So there are four great offices in the UK, one of which is the Home Secretary, the other is the Defence Secretary, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Prime Minister. These four are the four great offices. That's what they are called. Today, they are, they are no longer great or they are no longer important because the power is lies entirely elsewhere. So it doesn't matter once again whether Swela Braverman is the Home Secretary or some unknown other person is the Home Secretary. It doesn't matter anymore. These are just figureheads and the real power, the real decision making is elsewhere. So it's not an anti-India step. A step, yeah, maybe it's it's, uh, it's designed to, to make the UK, UK government look balanced. And, and even though you've appointed an Indian origin person as the PM, we have appointed a, a vocal India critic as the home minister. So, you know, balancing, it's a lot of messaging and all that. At the end of the day, these people don't really make any real decisions. So it doesn't really matter. So uh, my opinion of, about Rishi Sunak is that it's okay. It's it's nice. It's, it's It could have been worse. It could have been a Pakistani origin person or something like that. Or, or somebody rapidly anti-India. Or it could have been Swela herself as a prime minister. So compared to that, 
it's it it looks nicer to have someone of uh, Rishi Rishi Sunak's background as a prime minister, but it doesn't really matter. And uh, is he more British than the actual British? No, he's just British, and he's just just doing what he's told. That's what every UK PM does, whether it's Boris Johnson, whether it was Theresa May, whether it was what's her name, Liz Truss. I'm sorry, I don't mean to be. Uh, disparaging towards her. I'm sure she's a competent politician and a nice person. P- possibly. I don't know. I don't know much about her. She was hardly there and so on. So it doesn't matter who the prime minister is. They just do what they're told. The UK prime ministership is not important anymore. So that's that's my opinion about this. Okay, some more questions about uh, Mr. Rishi Sunak. Rahul Singh says, on Friday, today is Sunday, right? Yeah, on Friday, just a couple of days ago. On Friday, Rishi Sunak gave his first Prime Minister's questions. And the way he gave answers to the questions, it looked like he is in it for the long run. What are my thoughts about this? And Aryan says, is it possible that, that under Rishi Sunak, the UK could start pursuing an independent foreign policy? If yes, what will, the, will, will be the consequences? <laughs> so the first question is about the fact that Rishi Sunak gave his first uh, Prime Minister's questions, PMQ, they call it. And the way he answered the questions, it looked like he is in it for the long run. So once again, we are prioritizing spectacle or, or substance. <laughs> How many times must I have said this? And I'm going to keep repeating it because I'm sure there are newer viewers who have not been here before and so on. Words don't matter. How you speak doesn't matter. How you portray yourself and what spectacle you create doesn't matter. It is the actions that matter. He's been in office for what? Less than a week? Three days? Two days? Half an hour? I don't know what. how long he's been in office. And yes... He, he fielded the PMQ very well. He gave very good questions and he looked like he means business and it looked like it looked like he's in it for the for the long run. He could the rug could be pulled out from under his feet tomorrow, next week, next evening. The real power lies somewhere else. Rishi Sunak doesn't really have any great real power. He will be allowed to remain in office as long as he serves the powers that be. And he is a faithful and and uh, assiduous servant to their cause. right? That's all it is. So as long as he d- fulfills uh, the, the directions that are given to him and he does a good, competent job at it, he'll be allowed to be the Prime Minister. And yet, I'm not sure he will, even if he does a good job, he will be allowed to stay for too long. Because any politician who stays for too long for a certain period of time in a leadership position gains some real power. And that is always dangerous when you are a remote controlling of a vassal state. You'd never want any of their politicians, even if they have been appointed by you yourself, you never want them to stay in power for too long. It should always be a revolving door, uh, uh, a poll position, prime ministership, presidentship, whatever, right? So if I am running, if I am a superpower and I am remote controlling a vassal state, I have appointed their leader, prime minister, president, who it is, I don't want that person to stay in power for too long. First of all, I will not appoint a person who is extremely competent and who has some real leadership qualities. I will appoint a person who will be a good CEO, but not a good founder. There are many Indian CEOs in Silicon Valley and in, 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 the, in the US Fortune 500 companies, right? So if I am a superpower, I will appoint a person who will be a good servant, but not be a good leader. They will do exactly what I tell them. And even if they, are, they do the job well, I will not allow them to remain in power for too long because if they remain in power for beyond a certain period of time, they will actually gain some real leadership, some, re- some real power, because that is the nature of power. Somebody who's in a leadership position for a certain period of time gains genuine power through all the contacts they make and all the, eh, that's how it works. Yeah, That's that's how power works. So I don't see, uh, yeah, sure, he's in the in it for the long run. I, I suspect he may last uh, 
significantly longer perhaps perhaps he he may last longer than than his predecessor what's her name Liz Truss yes for sure i i i am pretty much sure that he may last longer than her yeah i may be wrong but i think he will last longer than her but i am not sure how long he will be allowed to last will he last as long as boris johnson lasted will he last as long as what's her name teresa may lasted or anybody else we don't know so it is likely that he will last much longer than liz truss but uh, will he have any actual power and will he be the main person doing the real decision making uh, that is not quite the case the second question is um, is it possible that under rishi sunak the uk could start pursuing an independent foreign policy that is impossible the moment rishi sunak uh, deviates from the script he is going to be gone that's how it goes he is going to not deviate from the script the script will be handed over to him every single day and he is going to play the role there are various such uh, people who play the role of prime minister president in various parts of the world i think you may have heard of some some people who use green screens and who who are not where they, uh, they seem to be and so on so these people are handed out scripts every single day they are told what to do and what to say and what statements to make and what pronouncements to make and what communications to put out and there's a team around those such people and they stick to the script the moment they deviate from the script they gone they done so um i do not see rishi sunak ever pursuing an independent foreign policy for the uk he has auditioned multiple times for the role of the chief servant of the superpower and now that he's got it he's going to do his best to stay in power as long as he can and he can only do that by sticking to the script that's given to him so i do not see rishi sunak pursuing an independent foreign policy if yes what are the consequences he will be gone in half an hour removed from the prime minister's position and he will never get any big position again if he does that so that is how it goes and that's the simple fact about the uk or about australia or new zealand or canada or any of the various uh, big and small us vassal states that's simply how it goes all right this is a lengthy question by harita uh, everyone says winter is coming implying that it could it would hurt europe and benefit russia what will be the effects of winter households will need to spend more to heat their homes which is that much is understood what will be the consequences of it economically and politically and how will it all affect the war how does the winter affect corporates and factories beyond needing to heat their office spaces india has been successfully providing various subsidies for years now why can't the european union provide energy subsidies i know it would hurt the other nations in the eu if only one nation like germany does it but why can't they work together to provide the subsidies in their all in all their nations and do it smartly unlike in britain do you think putin underestimated global warming warming it used to snow for multiple weeks in germany and france earlier but the past few years so only mild snowfall for one or two days what happens if the winter is not as severe as expected okay a whole bunch of questions and before i answer this let's also put this on the on the record this is by yesha living in germany i can confirm what you're saying once per month energy contract was 60 euros now it's 150 euros good god that's like two and a half times yeah uh groceries and everything else is getting costlier once we were spending once we are spending 150 to 200 euros for grocery per month now it's more like 300 euros it's uh, starting in 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 the beginning everyone was supporting the government for the ukraine war now they have started commending the government uh, i mean yeah okay and also common people have started to understand uncle sam's strategy but they can't do anything as the us is still present in germany the us is very much present in germany and the people who live in germany and who have been there for some time actually understand that okay 
so yes so this is uh, the the uh, this is uh, a ground report so to more or less from uh, somebody who is actually staying there now let's go back to the questions asked by harita uh, <clears throat> uh, so uh, what will the effects of winter be households will need to spend more to heat their homes right so when it comes to heat uh, winter if you look at the energy graph of the uh, of, of europe how much energy how much coal and gas is is consumed and how much energy is consumed it always spikes in winter if you look at uh, a five year trend you will always see the highest consumption of energy happening in winter because it's very cold right in various parts of europe it snows it freezes it goes to below 0 degrees celsius and you need to heat your homes otherwise going to freeze in your house if your if the temperature inside your house is minus 10 degrees celsius it's hard to survive and stay alive one night right so you'd need energy you need fuel and you know what's happening for the past 15 20 years the russians have been providing europe with unlimited almost unlimited supplies of energy let's go to the map and let's take a look at uh, how it is so we have been talking about uh, what's it called uh, we've been talking about nord stream nord stream is not the only pipeline that connects uh, russian energy supplies to to europe there are lots and lots of various pipelines large and small that uh, that supply russian gas to europe and europe was benefiting from these more or less unlimited supplies of gas and that's how europe was uh, uh that's that's something that powered the european economy for the longest time and that's what powered the 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 heating and the warming of of european homes all these years and now that the war has happened and the russians have more or less switched off the the supply of gas it's a big problem so russia has an enormous amount of territory and it it the the so called heartland or pivot area from in 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 terms of mackinder's heartland theory it it essentially holds nearly if not more than half of the world's resources half of the world's resources of of anything you can imagine all kinds of natural resources right uh, it it uh, raw materials petroleum metals uh, oil gas minerals agriculture whatever you you need you know to sustain a nation and to sustain a large military and uh, the the russians have been supplying europe with this and you need this energy to run industries it, not only for heating homes but to run industries whether you are manufacturing steel whether you are manufacturing chemicals whether you are running whatever industry it is but the, the germans uh, their number one industry is car manufacturing isn't it so to do that you need large amounts of energy and and europe was consuming almost unlimited amounts of energy from russia now that stopped right now it's not like the europeans are going to all die and freeze but it's going to it's going to raise it's this the price of energy is skyrocketing and i think during winter russian homes consume more than compared to summer let's say uh, europe consumes 50 to 70% more energy the european homes consume that much more energy and now when you are facing a resource crunch a, a gas crunch if you are to ensure that all every house in europe gets the amount of air, gas it needs to to for fuel for cooking for energy for heating and all that then you're going to have to divert some some of that away from the industry uh, 
or you have only a limited amount of energy and the prices will go much higher and then there'll be energy rationing uh, people will be asked not to use their heaters at certain times of the day in the in the daylight hours or whatever it's gonna be a very tough winter it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna affect the industrial output of uh, the european uh, powerhouses, industrial powerhouses. France and Germany are the main two nations. Germany is the industrial heartland of Europe. It's going to affect Germany significantly. Yeah. Uh, and so it's going to affect uh, corporations. It's going to affect factories uh, and uh, subsidies. Yes. Well, when you have limited supplies of energy, you can subsidize energy. But then what if you run out of energy? That's the thing. Germany seems to have stored a reasonable amount of energy, gas or whatever it is, and they are giving subsidies. But is every European nation in a position to do that? In India, we are not facing a resource crunch thus far. We are not facing a petroleum crunch or, or any other any fuel crunch. And that's why India can uh, provide subsidies in, in various ways. You know, mm -hmm. India during the coronavirus pandemic provided uh, almost more or less free uh, food grains to a significant amount of the population we did that for like a significant period of time nearly two years and that's why india was a, that's how india was able to tide over that crisis but um but is europe in a position to do that it's it's not just about okay i we, we have the money so we will give subsidies is it's about do we have the energy supplies do we have the the natural resources do we have the the gas that's needed to power the whole of europe for the entire duration of the winter um and so that's that's the conundrum that that the European nations are facing now. The Germans have decided to give subsidies, but will all other nations be able to follow suit? Uh, it is uh, unlikely, I would say. If it happens, it's great. I'm, I will be happy for the people of Europe. But what's happening is that uh, it it may be very difficult now about global warming. It used to snow for multiple weeks in Germany and France earlier. Now, in the past few years, we've only seen mild snowfall. See, global warming obviously is a thing. I don't think Putin has underestimated global warming. I don't think Putin underestimates anything. He's not a madman or a crazy person. He's a very rational actor. He th thinks with uh, with uh, all contingencies in mind. That's how you plan uh, ahead for uh, when you're running a whole nation. Um, there are... See, you can't always control the weather. You can't always predict the weather. I mean, I was in northern India just uh, 10 days ago. It was freezing there. Yeah, In some parts of the... In Ladakh, it's like minus 7, minus 10 degrees in October itself when it's supposed to be autumn, not winter. So the opposite of global warming also happens. You never know what's going to happen, right? So there was unseasonal, unseasonal snowfall everywhere, you know, very cold temperatures. But the same thing could happen in Europe. I mean, we do have uh, weather modeling and predictions and all that, but you, at the end of the day, you don't know. So I don't think global warming has become that severe yet. We still don't know how this winter is going to be. And you... So... um. The winter is going to be cold. It may not snow that much, perhaps, but it's certainly going to be cold. Yeah. And the objective is to wear the people down. It's not to, the objective, I don't think, is to kill people. I don't think the people of Europe will die as a result of this, but lots of people will indeed suffer. And the question they're going to ask themselves is why are we doing this to ourselves? Why are these, why are our governments doing this to us? This is not our conflict. It's not our war. Why are we suffering? We are supposed to, we have been imposing these sanctions on the Russians. And the objective is to make Russia suffer. But why are we suffering? Are we Russians? I think that's a joke that uh, Mr. Putin cracked recently, right? So if this persists for multiple months, it's going to create a lot of resentment for the governments in Europe. 
among their population, among their citizenry. And that's going to be, be make it very hard for the governments in Europe to continue along the same lines. So the cold months are October, November, December, January, February, until February, uh, some parts of March as well. March is when spring comes in. Yeah, so things get better in March. So you've got a significant period of time, like four months. About four months of time in which it's going to be really cold. It's going to get really, really difficult for Europe. So, yeah. So, uh, I think Mr. Putin is banking on the fact that there's going to be a lot of uh, pushback, a lot of resentment among the populations in Europe against the policies that their governments have been made to take. And uh, yeah, and obviously there'll be a plan beyond that also from Putin's perspective. Once spring comes in, what's going to be the plan for, for Ukraine? I mean, is he going to ask his soldiers, his his forces to hunker down, to, to entrench themselves at whatever position that they've got right now in winter? Is there going to be a winter offensive? We don't know. Yeah, but from the energy perspective, I think this is the, the, the plan that he has got for the next four months to make this uh, this entire conflict extremely unpopular in Europe, among the people of Europe. And that will make it hard for the governments to keep on towing the, the NATO line, right? Because it doesn't benefit the nation. Let's say from, from, from the perspective of, let's say, France, or the, for the, from, from the perspective of what other nation do we have? Netherlands, Belgium, Denmark, whatever it is, right? Uh, from their perspective, what are their citizens gaining out of all this? They are suffering. They are, they are made to suffer for multiple months. The the groceries are disappearing. The, there are no more heaters available, and so on. There are, there is this resource crunch that all the people are facing. For to what effect? For what purpose? How does it benefit the common man, woman, and child? Right? How does it benefit the nation? So that's the kind of resentment Mr. Putin wants to create. He's got this Trump card. Winter is always the Russian Trump card. And I'm sure that he's got plans beyond that. So that is what's happening. Uh, I don't think it's that easy to just provide subsidies because you need the energy, you need the resources, you need the gas or, the, or, or, or whatever it is. And many of the European nations have been shutting down their nuclear power plants. The Germans were doing this. Now they're reopening coal power plants and all that. It's muddled thinking. And this this crisis is is plunging Europe headlong into into a slow disaster. It's not good, yeah. And who's benefiting? It's not the Europeans who are benefiting from this. So that's the thing. So that's the game Mr. Putin is playing. That's how it goes in war. There is no nothing is unfair in 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 war. All all options are on the cards, and that's what's happening. Uh, so yeah, so that's what's happening in Europe. Okay, Mayuk says, as you said in one of your recent videos, Pakistan is back, back in the U.S. camp. So is there a possibility of an upcoming India-Pakistan war as the U.S. would want to hamper India's rapid growth in a bid to become a top three or even top two nation in the world? Yes, I, I spoke about this yesterday itself in, the, in episode 10 of the Indian interest that uh, Pakistan is now fully in the U.S. camp. So for the past 10 years or so, Pakistan has been uh, in the Chinese camp. Pakistan and China have been calling each, each other the Iron Brothers, right? The Iron Brothers, we will be together through thick and thin and all that. Well, the iron has melted now. Yeah, the iron, iron has evaporated. Pakistan is fully back in the U.S. camp. Pakistan is now a full-fledged U.S. vassal state, the same way it used to be in the 20th century, right? And the U.S., 
can throw way more money at the Pakistani generals than the, than the Chinese can. And the US also have other ways of coercing the Pakistanis. I mean, in the past, uh, there, who, what's his name? Richard Armitage had once threatened Pakistan, I think in the 20th century, in the late 20th century, that if they did not uh, tow the US line, he would uh, send, he would bomb them back to the Stone Age. So there's, there's, there's carrots and there's sticks, and the US know, the Americans know how to use that. So the Pakistanis are back to being the US vassal. The US, well, yeah, let's use the Vassal word. Nothing was nothing stronger than that. <laughs> yeah, so the Pakistanis are back in the US camp. So the Chinese have lost all control of Pakistan. That's to be understood. And there's going to be lots of repercussions of that uh, in the coming days. Um, so the question is about uh, India-Pakistan. Will India-Pakistan, uh, could, could there be in the future an India-Pakistan war? Because the US would want to hamper India's rapid growth. The U.S. certainly sees India as a long-term adversary. The U.S. doesn't want, I mean, India has the potential to become the number two, even the number one economy in the world. Certainly number three. In the next five, ten years, India will definitely become the number three economy of the world. No one's going to be able to stop that. The real question is, will it be able to surpass China in the next 30 years? Yeah, in the next 20 years? Or come close to China? And India has the resources. India has the manpower. India has the talent. India has everything at its disposal to be able to do that. So, as a superpower, as a major power, as a great power, you think long term. You don't think short term. You don't think what's going to happen next year, what's going to happen in the next three years. You think about what's going to happen in the next 50 years. You look at you look at geopolitics from a 20-year, 50-year, 100-year horizon. And you want to ensure that your supremacy, your hegemony remains and stays in place that long. So from that perspective, India is a future long-term adversary for the US. It's a it's it's a it's a potential superpower. India is nowhere close to being a superpower right now. Let's not delude ourselves. Lots of Indians keep asking me every single day about when will India become a superpower? Is India reached there or not? No, we are nowhere near being a superpower. But we are now a great power. We are now a major power. We are one of the three or four major powers in the world. But we are nowhere close to being a superpower. We could be a superpower in the next 20 to 50 years. It's certainly possible. It's actually probable if things continue the way that they're continuing. And that's why India is a long-term adversary for the U.S. And that's why they would take steps now to ensure that India never reaches that stage of, of being a possible threat or, or adversary or competitor to the U.S. economically, militarily, or any which way whatsoever. They don't want that to happen. They want India to remain this mentally colonized piece, I mean, piece of... Uh, geography with with uh, people who who are content in mediocrity and who think everything is great and who think that everything any progress is bad that's what they would like india to be like so, yeah yeah so um so they would certainly use every tool in the tool book and they have a very very extensive tool book they've used all kinds of tools in the past in the past uh, 100 years more or less of their dominance 70 years of their dominance ever since they became the top dog in the world after 1945, 1943, 1944 onwards, yes. So they have a lot of experience in managing nations and managing uh, uh, aspiring powers and how to ensure that they don't become real powers. And one of the ways is to embroil that nation in war. And there is a ready-made <coughs> adversary for India. The British created the... The British partitioned India for this reason. It had The partition of India had geopolitical... Uh, it served the geopolitical objectives of the UK and the US. 
that is something I can go into at, at another point in time. So that's why India was partitioned, right? And that's why this this hostile neighbors neighboring state was created now, on both sides of India. Now we were we were able to deal with one part one side of it, which is more or less uh, uh, less hostile to India, <laughs> right? But Pakistan still remains. Pakistan is still independent right now. Yes, Pakistan temporarily is independent. Pakistan temporarily is is a vassal state of the US, and they can use Pakistan in a variety of ways to to counterbalance India and to keep India off balance. And one of the ways of doing that is by embroiling India India in a war with Pakistan, which could possibly destroy Pakistan. But that's okay. That's okay. That's a throw of the dice. It's a it's a chess move, right? When you've got so many pieces to play with you know, on the, on the chessboard, you can afford to sacrifice one or two. So. Um, and of course, they would want to use Pakistan as long as possible against India to keep India off balance. So it is possible that uh, we may see some hostile action from 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 Pakistan in the future, in the upcoming future. It's possible. Whether it is in the form of, of uh, a resumption of terrorist activities, they could try doing that. They could try, uh, you know, cross-border terrorism. They could try cross-border infiltration of drugs and all that into India to, to destabilize the border regions of India. Uh, there are lots of tools at their disposal. They can use drones for that. I think the, the Indian authorities are intercepting Pakistani drones almost on a daily basis, which which uh, contain a, which which uh, carry this payload of drugs or whatever it is that's already happening. Uh, terrorism hasn't resumed. If they try that, they, they could... Uh, face a significant backlash from india and and you know an asymmetric backlash most likely but yes these are various tools in the toolkit and they could be used at, at whatever time uh, they see as appropriate so it is certainly now i think now <laughs> i think now it it seems that an india pakistan war in the future is more likely than an india china war that's how it looks to me right now uh, let's keep an eye on this things are changing very fast but now one thing that is for sure is that Pakistan is now firmly back in the U.S. camp. The Chinese have lost all control of Pakistan. Yes. And the, the Pakistanis will now do whatever their American masters tell them. So that's where we are. Okay, two questions. One is by Krishiv and one is by Daniel. What would provoke a country to use nukes, nuclear weapons, according to you? And the other question is, in the event of a nuclear exchange between India and the temporary state Pakistan and India and the People's Republic of China, how will the Indian nuclear doctrine perceive the supposed response from India towards Pakistan vis-a-vis -vis PRC? Surely India must reserve an extinction level response for Pakistan, but how will India respond to a Chinese nuclear provocation assuming India's nuke threshold is breached? Does our nuclear doctrine's response change from nation to nation? And is it about time for us to change our no first strike policy? All right, good questions. So the first question is about nuclear red lines. What would provoke a country to use nukes according to you? Well, every nation has its own perception of its red lines. The Russians, I, not, some nations have this no first use policy that they will never be the first nation to use nuclear weapons, but they will use nuclear weapons in retaliation to a first strike by another nation. Some nations have, do not have a no first use policy, which means that they reserve the right to new to use nuclear weapons first. Now, most nations declare this. Now, these declarations of intent, do we need to take them seriously? I mean, things change. And it's let's say you have a policy of no first use. Is that stated policy more important than your national interest? Let's say circumstances change and you are in a position when you very know that your nation is on the brink of annihilation for whatever reason, let's say hypothetically, right? In that case, does it not make does it, does it not make sense to do a first strike 
in order to save your nation from being annihilated, even if the adversary has not used nuclear weapons? That is a question that has to be addressed. And how do you address the question? You ask yourself, what is more important? Is the national interest more important? Is the survival of the nation more important? Or is my stated policy more important? It's very clear that your national interest always has to be paramount. Whatever statements and pronouncements you have made in the past are words. Words can be changed. Words You can go back on your words. What, what's wrong with that? Right? That's how it goes in geopolitics. So uh, if we have, India obviously we know has a stated no first use policy. Well, we can take that policy with a, few, a couple of grains of salt. And every nation has its own perception of red lines. For instance, Russia has... Um, all of its territory falls under the nuclear umbrella. So whatever territory is part of Russia, if there is a possibility of that territory being overrun by a hostile force, then the, the, Russia reserves to use the right to use nuclear weapons in defense of the territory to safeguard the, the territorial integrity of Russia. So that is the clear red line that Russia has. Uh, when it comes to Israel, now we know that Israel is a nuclear weapons power. They I don't know what number of nukes they have, but they have a significant uh, non-trivial number of nuclear weapons. They have a reasonably good stockpile of nuclear weapons. I think the number that's thrown around by the so-called experts is between 70 and 120 or whatever, 70, 180, whatever the number is. They have a decent number of nuclear weapons. And the objective, they call it the Samson option. The Samson, S-A-M-S-O-N, Samson option. That's what Israel calls its nuclear uh, stockpile. So... The the objective of the nuclear stockpile, stockpile is very clear. It's it, it's that in the case Israel is fa facing imminent destruction, they will annihilate all their neighbors, whoever is is uh, up against them. In this uh, uh, Samson option, maybe it will destroy Israel as well, but we will not let anybody survive this sort of thing. So uh, that is the Samson option. It is assured destruction of its neighbors, of, 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 of its enemies, not neighbors, not necessarily neighbors, but whoever is, is hostile to, to Israel. Let's say there is a war between Israel and whatever other hostile neighbor or nation. And if that nation is on the brink of overrunning and destroying Israel, then Israel reserves the right to annihilate the nation totally. right? And it may also result in the annihilation of Israel, but that's fine. So we will not let you succeed no matter what the cost. So that is the nuclear red line that Israel has. It is obviously uh, something that you will be will be used only as, as a last resort. So every nation has different perceptions of red lines. Now, when it comes to India, like I said, we have the stated no first use policy. So let's say we get embroiled in a nuclear exchange. Let's say with Pakistan. So I think visa. Uh, I think the nuclear policy or doctrine will differ from nation to when it comes to conflicts with various nations. I'm sure that India's policy or doctrine vis-a-vis -vis China will most likely be different from India's policy or doctrine vis-a-vis -vis Pakistan. So Pakistan is a different case, China is a different case, and both will be approached in a different way. That's, that, has, that is most likely the case. So let's say India gets involved in a nuclear exchange with Pakistan and the Pakistanis are the first to launch a nuclear missile or whatever it is, right? They are the first to breach the nuclear threshold. In that case, I think it's very clear that uh, the Indian response will be disproportionate. It will be an extinction-level response. If, if Pakistan dares to use even a single nuke, Pakistan will no longer exist within the next half an hour. That is a guarantee. Not next, next half an hour, next 10 minutes most likely. Yeah. So, uh, I see, let, these are all hypotheticals. We never ever want to see nuclear weapons being used, being used again, ever, against human beings against civilians it should never ever happen this is not something that you can 
it's it's not a joke it's not, it's it's not something that's this is a very serious matter so we never ever want this to happen but in the hypothetical scenario that it happens india will most likely uh have a disproportionate extinction level response towards pakistan if the pakistanis uh, breach the nuclear threshold pakistan will be erased from the map of the world that's that's very clear pakistan will cease to exist as an as a nation uh, we hope and pray it never happens we we never want this to happen i have absolutely nothing against my uh, uh, against the people of pakistan i have nothing against them it's the nation that's a terrorist state and that has to be dealt with in the right way when the time is right so that's about pakistan visa with china well the chinese aren't crazy the chinese uh, they have spent they have, they have expended a huge amount of energy and hard work and labor and and money in building up the nation to whatever stage it has reached china is nearly a middle income nation now it has developed so much so much since the 1970s and 1980s are they crazy would they be crazy to to willingly risk all of that in an in a nuclear exchange with india because it's almost impossible to defend every resource that you have and it's almost impossible to defend every city that you have yeah and e- even the anti ballistic missile technology isn't foolproof especially when you have marvs and mirv technology maneuvering reentry vehicles and you know multiple independent reentry vehicles so a single missile can carry let's say 10 warheads and these warheads they go in different directions and they maneuver while going down it's almost impossible to intercept that so if the chinese cross the nuclear threshold they are guaranteed to be met with an indian retaliation nuclear retaliation and this could come from any part of india or even from the ocean because we now have nuclear submarines which are on patrol yeah we will soon have multiple nuclear submarines the chinese are not crazy they will not i mean only a madman would what even envisage crossing the nuclear threshold with a nation like india so i think if let's say hypothetically the chinese do cross the nuclear threshold india will obviously respond respond to that and uh, i am sure india already see every nation has a set of targets let's say you are china you have a set of ready made targets that you know you want to target in case of a nuclear exchange with india or with russia or with the us oh russia is very much in the crosshairs right the russians they will also have this predefined set of targets let's say i get into a, a nuclear exchange with the us which targets will i take out it's like automatically programmed just press a button and the first strike happens the first response happens and so on so these are all predetermined targets these are all predetermined but you keep on tracking them and see how it goes so that's how it goes so in case there is a nuclear exchange between india and pakistan pakistan will cease to exist india will take some damage obviously but pakistan will be annihilated when it comes to india and china if the chinese do this the chinese will face significant uh, losses and they will lose a lot of what they have built over the past 30 40 years that's that's guaranteed so it is like mutually assured destruction when it comes to india and china india can certainly come out on top vis-a-vis a hypothetical nuclear exchange with pakistan before they can do too much damage we can wipe them off the map vis-a-vis china it's it's uh, more complicated china is a very large country and most of their uh, population centers and uh, large cities are far from india let's let's take a look at the map shall we so if we look at the chinese map the map of china uh, most of the, the, the entire heartland of china the population centers are in the east of china and what the regions that are contiguous with india and close to india which is uh, tibet and xinjiang these are mostly empty very little population it's only in the green parts of the map over here 
that you have population centers, significant population centers, and industrial centers like Wuhan, Xi'an, Chengdu, Chong, uh, Chongqing, Guangzhou, uh, Hong Kong, Shanghai, Beijing, and so on and so forth. Right? These are all far from India, but they are very much within reach of India's nuclear missiles. So, so that's the scenario. The Chinese and Indians both know that if this ever happens, it is essentially mutually assured destruction. The 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 Chinese will lose a lot of what they've built over the past 30 40 years and india will also india will also stand to lose a lot its major cities and all that we never ever want this to happen so when it comes to nuclear exchanges and all the theory behind it every nation is taken as a when you are when when you're india you approach every potential threat differently you will have a different response tailor made for each nation in case this ever happens and we never want this to happen so yeah that's how it goes obviously i am I am talking from the perspective of logic, the logic of strategy. I am not privy to India's nuclear doctrine, actual nuclear plants, or any such thing, right? I am simply giving you a logical assessment of how I see it from the using the logic of strategy and geopolitics and geostrategy and geography. Okay, Arya says, uh, BRICS countries are working on developing a BRICS currency and the BRICS central bank is going to be situated in gift city India. What will be its impact on, on the world and on India? Well, when it comes to creating your own currency, when it, first of all, every nation has, has its own currency, that's fine. But when you come together as a group of nations and you create your own currency, that's essentially a challenge to the existing hegemony of the US dollar. Now, the, the reason, one of the major central reasons why the US is the superpower is because the US dollar, the US currency, is the world's reserve currency. Most of the world's uh, trade, etc., is all done in, in US dollars. It's called the petrodollar for a reason. Most of the world's trade in petroleum was also until very recently, even now, it's all mostly all done in U, in US dollars. So the US controls the world's reserve currency. They can print as much as uh, of it as they want. They can manipulate exchange rates. They can do whatever they want with it. And they can affect the entire world by doing that. So if you have a new currency that comes up and lots of nations decide agree to use that currency instead of the US dollar, that's a major challenge to the US. And you don't do these things lightly. These are dangerous things to do because it will invite a response, a, a, a retaliation from the US, you know? And this sort of, war, this is warfare through a different means. And it can invite a different kind of response through other means, through even through kinetic means possibly. So uh, it's it's nice. I, I, I'm not sure if this has been announced. Maybe there are plans, maybe there is there is speculation about this happening in the future, but it will have to be approached very, very cautiously, very delicately, because this represents a major challenge to the US hegemony on the world. And you don't challenge the existing hegemon, the existing superpower lightly. You have to be very careful when you do that. But yes, uh, there are these things in motion, plans in motion. I'm thinking I'm sure there are secret talks being being conducted secret plans been been drawn out and all that uh, already there are nations that are trading in in currencies other than the us dollar we have the rupee ruble trade which is happening between india and russia uh, there is the 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 euro yuan trade also happening and and uh, real yuan trade also when it comes to china and the uae or china and some gulf nations and so on. So there are many nations that are experimenting with these alternative payment mechanisms. And if this gains a lot of currency, then it could kind of 
slowly but steadily erode away at the supremacy and primacy of the US dollar and that is something the US will not tolerate. Uh, but yeah, we, are they in a position, they are still the, the major power in the world. They can still do more or less what they want at any part of the world. They still have the ability. So that's why this has to be approached very carefully. But yes, in the long run, if there's a group of nations that wants to create a new world order, maybe create a bifurcation of the existing world order, then they will have to de-dollarize their, their economies. Yeah, de-dollarization. That's a very dangerous word. And yeah, one of the ways of doing it is, is, is to create a common currency. Let's say a BRICS currency. Now, BRICS could expand. You could have a BRICS plus, a BRICS plus plus. South, of, uh, South Africa, the South African president has uh, revealed or claimed, revealed that, that Saudi Arabia wants to become a part of BRICS, wants to become a BRICS member. Iran wants to become a member of BRICS. And there are various other nations in, in Latin America and other places who would possibly want to become members of BRICS. So when you have a coalition of nations, the core power in that coalition, in that grouping, the grouping is typically controlled by the nation that has the most power. And right now it's China, but China's power is not that great nowadays. It's it, China is a little subdued these days because of various setbacks. It has faced very, very strong setbacks. It has faced in the past two years, two to three years. Yes. So the Chinese are a little more subdued now. So the core grouping in BRICS is the RIC grouping, Russia, India, China. Russia is under, under fire from, from the West, from NATO, from the US. India is, is playing a balancing act. China is now taking it easy, not being very aggressive these days. Uh, and yet, if these nations find a way to come together through their common interests, through their shared interests, and bring more nations together, they could be able to create a significant grouping of nations. And then if they issue their own currency and, and agree to trade in that currency only, then that could represent a significant challenge to the supremacy and hegemony of the US uh, dollar and the US itself, right? So that could, we, we are obviously already seeing this emerging bifurcation of the world order there is the rules the so-called rules-based world order that the u.s has run for the past 70 years which is more or less the u.s whims based world order whatever they decide is the rule and that could change next week or whatever but yeah that's how it's been so they have controlled the entire global economy through the u.s dollar see ever since 1943-44 which was the year the Bretton, Bretton woods agreement happened i think it was one year before the end of the of the second world war and ever since then they, they have controlled the global economy and the u.s dollar has reigned supreme even after the the petroleum crisis in the in the 1970s was it or so, yeah 1970s right and so on that's when it became the petrodollar it, it delinked itself from gold but now if you have a common BRICS currency and lots of nations join BRICS, and maybe if you can peg the BRICS currency to the price of gold or something like that that could make this currency a very valuable and and, and um, something very lucrative somebody something that people would want to have yeah so yeah it could happen but it has to be done judiciously delicately and with a lot of caution, because it will obviously invite a significant response from the nation that stands the most to lose from such a thing happening, which is the US. And you don't want to be very overtly on the bad side of the US, right? I think it would be great if there are multiple currencies in the world that are strong. Uh, right now, it's only one currency. I mean, you have other currencies that have a high value. The UK pound has a high value, the euro, but these are all proxies for the US dollar. These nations are all controlled by the US, so they don't re represent any real challenge to the US. The, the yen was also one of these. So uh, the yuan is the one challenger right now 
to the US dollar. The ruble also is doing very well because they have pegged the ruble to the price of gold and so on. So if you create a, a BRICS currency and maybe peg that to the price of gold, that could be a significant challenger. It could happen. But yeah, we are still in, in, in very early stages, very preliminary stages. If this happens and if the BRICS central bank is in India, then that could represent a challenge to, to the US from India's side. So yeah, we are seeing a very rapid reshaping of the world order and it's not nearly close to done. It's going gonna, it's gonna to go on and things are going to be shaken up a lot. The whole entire world order is going to be shaken up a lot. We are most likely just in the beginning phases of that. So yeah, things are going to get much more interesting and much more intense as the years go by in the 2020s. Months go by. Why years? Months. Okay, Samarth says, Dr. S. Jayashankar is going to visit Russia on the 8th of November, citing an escalation of the Ukraine conflict. Can India become a sort of a mediator and ensure that no nuclear weapons of any sort are used by both the sides? Your thoughts about this important upcoming visit, considering Russia was to hold a bilateral summit with India this year? Good question. Yes, so it's been announced that uh, uh, our foreign minister, Dr. Jayashankar, will be visiting Russia on November 8th. I'm not sure what they have cited. It doesn't matter what they've cited. It's it's uh, it's an important development. Now, I'm sure you know that uh, India and Russia have this agreement that every year, once a year, there will be a bilateral summit between the leaders of the two nations. And this is a tradition that's been going on for several years. Uh, last year, because of the pandemic, uh, Mr. Putin did come to India. It was a very hurried visit, but he made sure that he comes in December. He came in December. He It was a very rapid flying visit. He was in India for only for five hours. His team arrived before him and then he came to India. He met the Prime Minister straight from the airport to the Prime Minister's house, residence, and they had their meeting, the summit, five hours, and then he went back. And this is something that happened in the prelude to the Ukraine conflict. right? So last year, Mr. Putin ensured that he did keep the commitment and he came to India. Now this year, we don't know what's going to happen. Is the summit going to happen or not? This this year, it's Mr. Modi's turn to go and visit Moscow. Now he will obviously be under pressure from the United States and the West and NATO to not do this. Yeah. If they, so if this, the, the summit doesn't happen this year, then the West could interpret that or spin that as some kind of win on their side against Russia and so on. So as of now, we don't know if a summit is going to happen this year or not. We are already in deep into October now, the, almost November, right? So two months to go for the end of the year and the summit hasn't happened. It's not been announced. So yeah, so we don't quite know yet whether this will happen and whether Mr. Modi will make the trip to Moscow and, and uh, hold the summit with Mr. Putin. Of course, you can also hold a virtual summit, but that's not quite the same thing, right? That has a... That doesn't have the same, well, the same optics and same significance as two leaders meeting and hugging and, you know, all that. So uh, so right now, what we know is Dr. Jayashankar is going to visit Moscow on November 8th. He's going to meet his counterpart, uh, Mr. Lavrov, and maybe some other important Russian leaders. We don't know if he will meet Mr. Putin. It doesn't matter. Maybe he will, maybe he will not. But he's going there. He's a very, he's India's top diplomat. So uh, the question now is, will India or can India become a mediator? between the two sides in the conflict and ensure that no significant escalation happens and uh, no nuclear weapons obviously are used on either side. I think India is in the prime position for doing this. If there is any nation right now that is equally 
let's say friendly there is no friendship as we know in geopolitics but let's just use the term loosely if there is one nation right now if there is a major power in the world right now that is equally friendly and comfortable with both sides it's india there is no other nation that has the, the stature of india right now that can talk equally well with 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 uh, the same amount of warmth and courtesy and all that and trust as india so when it comes to india we can talk to the russians with a great amount of warmth and there's a great amount of uh uh trust on both sides when it comes to india and the west the same amount of trust may not be there but there is a great amount of comfort level we have been dealing with the west for a very long time yes for the past 30 or so years and mr modi has made lots of visits there he is very comfortable very very familiar with uh, how things work there our diplomats have had this long standing understanding and and contacts with the west so india is in and india is right now playing this balancing act it is pursuing an independent foreign policy it's buying oil from the west uh, from, from from russia from russia it's also engaging with the west in a multitude of ways so india is in pole position to play the role of a diplomatic mediator and ensure maybe as 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 a means of communication between the two sides as a mediator yeah and ensure that tensions don't go beyond boiling point and things don't escalate too much india has consistently through various officials through various leaders whether it is mr rajnath singh whether it is um, dr jayashankar or whether it is prime minister modi himself india has repeatedly said this uh, the same refrain that this is not the time for war and these conflicts need to be resolved through diplomacy not warfare and all that while pursuing india's own national interest in the whole matter so i think india is in a, is in a very good position and india may possibly be the only nation that can play this role right now yeah so things are going to change now this winter i think uh, there's going to be a energy crisis food crisis all that in europe i hope it doesn't make the people of europe suffer too much i hope not i suffering is never good but yeah we can, we, we can see it happening and maybe the two sides russia and nato will get entrenched in their positions possibly in ukraine your yeah, russia is next a quarter or so of ukraine or maybe a fifth of ukraine it will entrench its positions there and and consolidate its hold on those regions you could see offensives you may not and i certainly hope there is no crossing of the nuclear threshold there has been too much talk of this too much irresponsible talk of crossing the nuclear threshold how a, a, a limited nuclear war could be good for climate for the environment and global warming and um, there's been this talk of dirty bombs you know and so on they, these are very dangerous things to talk about and the west media seems to be trying to normalize and and trivialize this thing and now the R- russians have made this uh, claim this allegation that the the nato side ukraine or whatever is is planning to use a dirty bomb in a false flag attack so these are very dangerous times we're living through and we do not want to see a crossing of the nuclear threshold on whatever side it's 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 not something you ever want to see so i think india is in, is in pole position for playing a mediator's role you know a nation that's trusted on both sides a nation that has very good relationships on both sides and a nation that does desire peace we do not want to see things escalate it's not good for india it's not good for europe it's not good for anybody in the world we do not want an escalation of this conflict it could it could impact the economy worldwide it could um, 
create a terrible fuel crisis, food crisis, especially in the so-called global south, especially in the poor nations in Africa. It could even affect India to some extent or to a large extent. We do not want these things to happen. So it is in our interest and it is in the world's interest that the Ukraine conflict does not escalate beyond certain lines. It should not happen. And I think it is it is possibly going to be India's role to play uh, uh, to play the mediator's role in this conflict. So yes, this could be why this could be one of the reasons why Dr. Jashankar is visiting Moscow. Maybe he is a very active and very busy person. Um, He's been uh, traveling non-stop and meeting with various of uh, various counterparts non-stop ever since the conflict started. I'm not sure how much sleep he's getting, but he's very active, very busy, and he's doing a stellar job at this. So maybe he'll have to take on an additional responsibility, perhaps, to as that of a mediator between both sides, as, as a bridge to communicate between both sides, while also taking care of the Indian national interest and in Indian diplomacy. So yes, uh, yeah, that, that could be happening. That That's something that is certainly on the cards. So we're not quite sure what the agenda is, what is the stated agenda, if there is any of this upcoming visit. But yes, he will certainly discuss the situ security situation, the, the energy situation, India, Russia, uh, defense cooperation ties, and maybe uh, the possibility of an upcoming summit between the two leaders in Moscow or somewhere else in Russia this year. So there's going to be a, a number of things to discuss. And uh, let's see what is the outcome of that. But it's certainly a very important visit in the context of how things are going right now. So yeah, I think I, I'm sure the world will be watching this 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 visit, and uh, we'll be watching with different expectations. But let's see how it goes. Yeah. Okay. Adarsh says. You mentioned in previous sessions that the US has mostly contained China in its quest to become another superpower. Does that mean that it no longer needs India as a counterweight to China? Will this intensify breaking India activities to an unprecedented level? How can we be prepared? Yes, so I have indeed mentioned multiple times that I do not see China. Uh, yeah, the US does seem to have contained China to a certain extent. China does not seem to be on track anymore to become a superpower. And why do I say this? It's because the 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 vehicle that the Chinese government, that the Chinese Communist Party wanted to use for to 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 as as the vehicle for China's rise to superpower status, that vehicle was the Belt and Road initiative the bri the one belt one road and the the uh, maritime silk route so that's that's like two things but it had the same purpose right infrastructure building and connecting china with with the rest of eurasia with europe mostly yeah so that was the obor thing and one of the, its its components was the cpec china pakistan economic corridor so that's that was china's great bid for superpower status construction construction of this massive amount of infrastructure uh, investment of hundreds of billions of dollars, maybe trillions of dollars in creating this infrastructure, which would integrate China's economy with the, that of Eurasia and also with Africa and all other places that uh, produce raw materials, minerals, and various re natural resources. And that was supposed to, uh, to, to fuel China's rise to superpower status. Now, what's happened in the past since 2019? We know what happened, the pandemic. And that brought the entire world's economy to a, to a grinding halt. And China seems to have been affected more than any other nation. Even now, they have these uh, incredibly harsh lockdowns that are still going on in China. The rest of the world has moved on 
from the pandemic right in india i think it's only the airlines that that force people to wear masks for no reason whatsoever you know you come to the airport without a mask you mingle with hundreds of people thousands of people but on board you have to wear a mask for one hour two hours three hours whatever and then you go back to normal things and while eating in the in the plane you can it's okay to not wear a mask it's stupid bureaucratic nonsense anyhow india is still laboring under that but apart from that india no no longer is bothered about the pandemic the pandemic hopefully is a thing of the past no one's wearing masks everyone's vaccinated so it's a thing of the past and the indian vaccine as opposed to other vaccines the indian vaccine actually works so india and the rest of the world more or less has put the pandemic behind it the americans are still insisting that the the the, the vaccine has to be the booster doses have to be taken every year or so it's like a vaccine as a service you have software as a service right they are using this new concept of vaccine as a service to keep enriching their their pharmaceutical giants apparently whatever so the rest of the world has moved on from the pandemic the chinese are still reeling under the pandemic they still have this zero covid policy these very harsh lockdowns which are crippling the chinese economy it's still happening now so i wonder why the chinese are being forced the chinese are not stupid they will not do this unless they have a very good reason for doing this so there's something happening in china which we not quite sure what it is and this pandemic this virus has affected china more than any other nation the chinese economy is crumbling it's it, it's crawling they are not even revealing the gdp figures anymore that's how bad it is yeah so the chinese economic machine has ground to a halt their nation has been ravaged by this virus we have all been blaming the chinese chinese for the virus but look at who who it has hurt the most and who has it has it benefited the most look at it from that perspective the cost benefit perspective who has it cost the most and who has the pandemic benefited the most that is that gives you that that's very revealing when you when you do that analysis so the chinese seem to have suffered more than any other nation as a consequence of the pandemic it has destroyed their economy not destroyed entirely the economy is still there the machine is still there the industrial machine the economy machine, machine is still there but the output is very low now the gdp growth is 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 very very low it's it's crawling it's like 1% or 2% or something earlier it was like 10% plus for the longest time under mr hu jintao and now under mr xi jinping it's crawling so the chinese are no longer in a position to become a superpower anytime soon and as a consequence of the ukraine conflict they were hoping that the western sanctions on russia would force russia to come crawling to china and then the chinese would be able to extract all kinds of lopsided concessions from the russians which would essentially turn russia into a chinese vassal state that was the great big hope that did not happen because india prevented it from happening india started buying 50 times more oil than before from the russians and that ensured that the russians did not have to go crawling to the chinese and begging for help the russians were able to preserve their precious strategic autonomy because india did this so the russians have been saved by india and that has been something the chinese did not seem to have expected this was not part of their calculations so all of their calculations have been a miss and they have not been able to achieve the objectives they were hoping for from hoping for right so russia its strategic auton- autonomy is is intact it is obviously russia has certainly been battered by the western sanctions but they are still able to stand stand tall or stand not not on the, they are not not yet on their knees they have been uh, rescued to some extent by the indians right so because of this you could certainly say and and the the, the americans are now 
engaging in this trade war with the Chinese. They are uh, imposing a variety of sanctions on the Chinese, especially this the the uh, sanctions against the Chinese semiconductor industry, the chip industry. Lots of people I saw in the comments are saying that it's not going to affect China anymore. Please, please grow up a little bit, do do some proper ana analysis. Uh, it's going to affect China a lot. The Chinese do have a lot of capabilities, a lot of uh, expertise in making semiconductors. But when it comes to the cutting edge technology, they, they are dependent completely on the Americans, whether it is for, 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 for components or whether it is in terms of expertise, human expertise. So the Americans have said that any American citizen who works in the Chinese chip industry in China stands to lose their American citizenship unless they resign immediately and go back to the US. So that has overnight taken out all the expertise, the cutting edge expertise that the Chinese needed. Yeah. And uh, the Chinese are no longer going to receive any components from the US, the cutting edge components they need for the cutting edge technology, the research and development and all that. So yes, they have some expertise and they're going to keep on doing that. But the future growth of the industry, the semiconductor industry, the chip industry is 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 in great jeopardy right now in China, and they they don't quite know what to do. Yes, they could retaliate uh, in a variety of ways. There could be a reciprocal trade war. The Chinese control what 70, 80, 90 percent, whatever it is, of the world's rare earth, uh, rare earth metals, yes, minerals. So they could impose some kind of an embargo on the US from, from that perspective. So that could make things really ugly and we could all suffer as a consequence of that. You want to buy your laptops, mobiles, tablets, whatever it is, buy it now. You may have, you may run into a shortage in the upcoming months if this escalates. So the Chinese are more or less contained now. They are still an independent nation. They still have an independent foreign policy. They still have a massive navy. They are still trying to upgrade their military and, and bolster the military muscle. But the mojo is gone. The mojo is gone. The economic growth has flattened. The Chinese population is aging. So all of this is happening. And if you look at it from a big picture perspective, from, from a you know 10-kilometer perspective, up high, it is clear that the Chinese economic growth has stalled and China is no longer on track to become a genuine superpower. Their great hope and aspiration was to replace and displace the US as the world's sole superpower by around 2050. That doesn't seem to be anywhere near happening now, right? So this tells you that there's only one superpower now in the world as of now, the US, and there are three great powers, India, Russia, China in this extremely uncomfortable tango together, India, Russia, China. Russia doesn't trust China. India doesn't trust China. China trusts neither. And yet we are somehow together in BRICS. So that's where we are, right? So as as the second, see, there have been, there have been two Cold Wars. The first Cold War was in the 1900s, in the 20th century. And now we were in the middle of the second Cold War, which was between America, the US, and China. And the US-China relationship or 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 uh, or uh, adversary relationship relationship was in parallel with the india china with the india china adversarial relationship so the us needed india as a counterweight to china as china rose it, the americans needed india to rise as well but now that china is no longer rising it appears that india may not have so much use from the us perspective which is why they are now turning their focus back on pakistan as a counterweight to India and as a counterweight to China as well, possibly. You can see all kinds of weird stuff happening in, in Xinjiang. 
you could see an escalation of of uh, terrorist activities in Xinjiang. You know, the Xinjiang region is is claimed by the Uyghurs as their homeland, and they they have this independence movement. They say that the Chinese are persecuting them, and the, the West the Western nations claim that uh, there is a Chinese persecution and genocide of the Uyghurs happening in Xinjiang. And you could see cross-border terrorism emanating from from Pakistan into Xinjiang. That's a, that sort of thing would happen. So the so Pakistan right now has a great amount of utility for the US. It is useful against India. It's also useful against China. So right now, the way things have gone, the way things have been engineered somehow or the other in the last two or three years, China's rise has stalled. And as a consequence of that, the US does not need India that much anymore as a counterweight to China. Right? As a consequence, you could see the Americans using... Pakistan to counterbalance India because they don't want India to rise and become the next China. And you could see various breaking India activities also rising. We know what these are. There are various aspiring Zelenskys within India, various politicians of various hues, all mediocre people. You know, and they, they there are multiple aspiring Zelenskys who are currently auditioning for the role of the top Zelensky in India. And these are all funded by the West. If you look at, if you follow the money, where the see, you cannot have a political movement without money. Please understand this. You may be the greatest person in the world with the most amount of leadership qualities in the world, but unless you know how to organize a movement, organize a, a party from the grassroots up, a proper leadership hierarchy, no organization can work without a proper hierarchy. It's called organization. Every in every political party, in every political movement, there are people who specialize in organization. Sardar Patel was one of those. He was Mr. Gandhi's go-to man for organizing and disciplining the Congress party. Mr. Mohandas Gandhi would not have been able to achieve anything was it not for the unquestioning obedience of Mr. Patel. Mr. Patel was Mr. Gandhi's enforcer in the Congress party. He was in part of organization and discipline. So in any political movement, in any political party, you need proper organization, well-oiled organization and discipline. And this is impossible to achieve without large infusions of money. Because you need to organize things. You need infrastructure. You need vehicles. You need uh, to pay people. At the grassroots level, people will not work for you unless you pay them. They may have the same agenda as you. They may have the same ideology as you. But unless you pay them, they will not be in a position to work for you and serve you. This is how power works, my dear friends. Power <laughs> power and money all over again, isn't it? So money and power. So, so you need all that. Once you have a proper control over the system, then it's yours. But when you are building it up, you need infusions of money. And political parties get money from various quarters, from various sources. And when you have aspiring Zelenskys who want to create their own uh, artificial movements, they need money for that and expertise. And this expertise comes from outside. Much of it comes from outside, I'm, I'm assuming. I'm not naming any Zelensky. Zelensky is a, is, a, is a hypothetical term I'm using. I'm not pointing fingers at any individual person or politician in India. Please understand that. I'm just saying there are various aspiring Zelenskys. And for them to sustain their movements, they need infusions of cash and money from outside. So all of that is, the, 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 the West has, has perfected this over a very long period of time. They have run so many different client states in various parts of the world, 
in various African nations. They have propped up lots of dictators. They know how it's done. They've propped, propped up dictators in the Middle East. Saddam Hussein was once their guy. There have been many more. Yeah. There are right now many, many politicians in various parts of the world who are still on the payroll of the West. Look at the, the Rwanda's president, Africa's favorite dictator who has been in power for more than 20 years, more or less. Yeah. And there are many other examples. So the West knows how to run the show and to and how to run these fake grassroots movements and to prop up Zelensky's in various parts of the world. And yes, this this is already happening in India. It's been happening for the longest time, actually, in India, in a variety of ways. So yes, you could see an intensification of these what are termed what what we term as breaking India activities, subnational diplomacy. Uh, listen, once again, I am not pointing fingers at any politician. I don't know who has said what and who has not said what, but typically, if any politician within India talks about subnational diplomacy, I would I would um, I would bet that it's possible. It is it, it is a possibility to some extent that there may be some funding coming in for, for, for that political movement from maybe somewhere outside the country. Yeah, subnational diplomacy is a, is a very big tool, tool, uh, tool in the toolkit. And this is all, all about creating fissures and fragments, uh, fragmentation and divisions within a nation and exploiting those to destabilize the nation and to corrupt it and to co-opt it and to hijack it from within. So these things will happen. And that, that's the main reason why that's the main reason why India has been hampered for the, for the longest time. Ever since 1947, India has had these various amounts of foreign influence from various quarters within the country. May, sometimes at very high levels in the government. I'm not saying what what up to what level it's gone. But yes, it's it's been known, it's been revealed that Various people have been on the payrolls of various foreign agencies. So this could be something that could intensify in the coming days because India is no longer that important. Even when India was important for the US, this was still happening. It could happen even more now. It's a possibility. Certainly possible. Okay, Weibov says, the US is offering technology transfer of F-414 engine for the ad, uh, advanced medium combat aircraft that India is developing. Uh, it's also offering local manufacturing in India of this uh, jet engine. Uh, Rolls-Royce, which is a British company, is offering its EJ-200 engine with 130 kN of thrust, of thrust. And Safran is considered a weak contender because of its low thrust engine. What's your choice? The US is using Pratt and Whitney engine for F-35 and F-22. So the engines that are being offered to India, whether it's by the US or Rolls-Royce, are not the latest, most cutting-edge engines. These are engines that were conceived and, and developed in the 1970s and 80s, mostly. This is not new technology. They're offering us essentially kind of two generations behind us technology kind of thing. And I'm not sure to what extent the technology transfer will be done. Yeah? Because there are certain components in engines that uh, require a great deal of technical expertise. For instance, if you have a commercial jet jetliner, let's say you travel in, in across India, there are various uh, jet planes, you know, Airbus engines and Airbus planes or Boeing planes or whatever it is. These planes use your commercial turbojet engines. I'm not sure what the engine is called. In these commercial airplane engines, the temperature inside reaches nearly 2000 degrees Celsius. That is above the melting point of most metals that we use. 
whether it is aluminum or or copper or zinc or or titanium i'm not sure about titanium but certainly iron and all that so in order to build an engine to construct an engine that can whose internal components which are very delicate actually whose internal components can withstand that that incredible amount of temperature and pressure it takes the knowledge of of you know exotic materials special materials special kinds of coating and, and special alloys of metals sometimes you you have to build an entire blade of a jet engine from a single crystal of metal and so on so this is extremely advanced cutting edge technology and they may give you the technology of everything else but they may not give you the technology for this in which case you will have to keep on depending on them for spare parts every time your engine has has, has operated for a certain number of hours you need to change certain components in order to maintain the reliability of the engine and ensure that nothing goes wrong so for that you will be perennially dependent on them for spares so even in these engines that are being offered to us whether it's from the us or the uk or france i am not sure if there's going to be a real genuine 100% transfer of technology so that's the conundrum that's the dilemma that india is currently wrestling with we do have this amca program we have we have another teb te twin engine deck based fighter fighter jet program which is for future uh, which is a future uh, uh, naval fighter plane that we will be having and obviously we have the amca program the advanced medium combat aircraft the fifth generation fighter plane that we are developing none of these fighter planes will can operate without a reliable jet engine and you need a jet engine with a certain amount of thrust the current uh, so we have india has been developing the kaveri engine for a very 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 long time from the 19, 1980s or something i think it's right now able to produce i don't know 70 or 80 kilonewtons of thrust thrust which is not very bad but it is kind of underpowered so when you have a single engine jet plane like the tejas i think we are relying on one of these uh, one of these uh, f414 or 404 engines from 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 the us right uh, i'm not sure what is the the amount of thrust it's producing must be in excess of 100 kilonewtons for sure because if you if you only have one jet engine for for a plane it needs to be significantly uh, it needs to produce a significant amount of thrust above a certain limit so it's clear the kaveri jet engine is not currently up to the mark for powering the uh, the tejas fighter plane unless you put two kaveri jet engines in which case it would be fine but we then you, you you will have to completely reconfigure the aircraft which takes years you know so uh, the kaveri engine can be used on certain drones on certain autonomous uh, you know uh, remote controlled vehicles and so on so it does have its utility it can be reconfigured repurposed for various uh, cruise missiles perhaps and there's a lot you can do with the kaveri engine but it needs to go to the next level it needs to cross the 100 kN th- thrust threshold and hopefully we should be i don't know what's what the status is it's obviously something that's uh, kept under wraps and we don't quite know what the status is we know that uh, the the french company safran has been uh, involved in some aspects of the kaveri engines development or maybe some other engines development um, and i'm not sure if the technology transfer has been done 100%, 100% entirely so yeah that that is the major achilles heel when it comes to indian fighter plane development a reliable indigenous engine once we cross that threshold we are home free we are independent more or less because now we know how to design a good quality fighter plane 
we have done we have we have gone through a mountain of lava more or less we have gone through every single bad experience we can go through but we now have a reliable world class fourth generation fighter plane the tejas fighter plane in its various iterations it's going to be the uh, framework for creating the next generation of fighter planes the the, the amca the te te dbf or whatever it is yeah, and, and maybe some other fighter planes in the future as well so now we know how to do it now it's easy it's it's much easier not easy but it's much easier to use that as the framework for developing the next generation of fighter planes to design that and to test it out it will not take that much time as it took for the tejas fighter plane in the next 5 6 years you will have a flying amca the only question is what engine will it use will we be still dependent on foreign engines whether it's american engines or or uk rolls rolls engines or french engines engines we could even turn to russia for engines but even then we will be dependent on the russians we don't want that that's a, that is a critical dependence that is that that essentially uh, puts you at somebody else's mercy so india needs to develop design and construct its own indigenous jet engine that is uh, that produces sufficient thrust so that is something that is critical to national interest and uh, so right now what we would have to do is maybe acquire one of these jet engines as an interim measure but um, the entire focus at the gtre gas turbine research uh, establishment in bangalore has to be on somehow or the other at any cost cost ensuring that the kaveri jet engine or whatever jet engine they are working on gas turbine engine um, does the job we needed to do so we need to develop our own engine in the interim uh, in in the interim we may have to acquire one of these engines and maybe if one of these nations cooperates and at the right price they may if they actually transfer the full technology that will be great in that case we don't have to reinvent the wheel so when it comes to national security it doesn't matter how you acquire the technology you buy it you beg for it you borrow it you steal it doesn't matter acquire it once you acquire it you can move on to the next step buy beg borrow still doesn't matter it's all about the national interest and, and, and it's all fair game so yeah that's where we are right now and i'm not quite sure where at what stage we have reached in the development of an indigenous jet engine um so yeah that's where we are shrikant says what's your take on nato pilots secretly training chinese pilots one american national daniel duggan was arrested in australia for the same reason looks like china secretly has been secretly funding some aviation training academies and recruiting western pilots to train their pilots for aircraft carrier missions who will have more india impact india or the west i'm not sure about india or the west let me let's let's address this so what's happening it's indeed come to light that various uh, uk uh, british pilots have been involved in training uh chinese pilots or uh, vis-a-vis -vis their aircraft carrier missions so these are british pilots who uh, served in the air force and then were released and it seems like an american national was also arrested for doing this thing and when it comes to the, to the uk they have been appealing to their pilots to come back and not do this but they don't seem to have any other measure other other means at their disposal to let's say force these pilots from uh, doing this work so what's really happened what's really happened is that the uk especially has this uh, diversity policy 
in the armed forces which means that let's say you you have let's let's say hypothetically you have 100 air force pilots in the uk so they have this diversity quotas that at least so and so percentage must be female let's say let's say female and at least so and so person percent of them need to be uh, of of other ethnicities not not white not uk but let's say mixed race or 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 people of color like they say or whatever it is so they have all these artificial quota requirements like they have in south african cricket so so even if let's say a certain person is good enough is competent and uh, is meritorious enough to get into the program and become a pilot that person may not be uh, allowed to fly for the uk because of diversity quota requirements and it looks like many such people have been released for such reasons so the question you have to ask yourself is in what circumstances does a person betray his or her nation it's a psychological thing under what circumstances is a would a person be willing to betray his or her nation typically this would happen a person would be willing to betray their nation if they themselves feel like they have been betrayed by that nation right like i deserved something i worked hard for it i earned it and then my nation took it away from me and gave it to somebody less deserving if you have this feeling inside you and if you have worked your entire life for something it's been your dream your goal your aspiration and you achieved it and it was taken away from you then you will certainly have this deep feeling of betrayal and when you do that to a person i think it is it it opens up the likelihood that they may actually go ahead and do something like this like betraying their nation and cooperating with a foreign nation that is adversarial to to your nation and helping them out to the detriment of your own national interest so when you have these quotas when you do not respect talent when you do not respect merit that's when you are undermining your own nation and your own society any for any nation to prosper you have to respect merit you have to respect merit you can't have reservations and quotas that go against merit when you do that you are undermining your own nation your own society you are creating a genuine feeling of betrayal among your own people and this is a lesson for india as well by the way i think we all know that when you have these quotas you know when it comes to the armed forces the armed forces are not an employment generation scheme this is something people don't understand in india or in many other parts of the world the armed forces have one purpose it is to safeguard the national interest the territorial integrity and the national security of the nation the armed forces are not an employment generation scheme in the armed forces entry should be open to anybody who meets the the threshold requirements right it should be based purely on merit you want the best people in your armed forces not people based on various uh, artificial bureaucratic quotas so that's what the uk has been doing i think that's what various western militaries have been doing quotas and when you have quotas you will have people who are not quite deserving who will rise to the to a certain position and fill a position and you will have really well deserving people who will not get the opportunity because they have been replaced by somebody else that's what engenders this deep feeling of resentment and betrayal among the people and this also happens in educational institutions when you have quotas in education and all that yeah and it creates this feeling that i don't love my country why should i love my country my country doesn't love me my country did not give me what i deserved what i worked for and that's when you have these betrayals that happen 
So you want to you want to compromise a nation, you destroy the system of merit. So that's what's happening here. So yeah, an American national has been arrested in, in Australia. I, I also saw, saw the news, and various British pilots have been profiting, you know, using this as as a means to earn money in China. The Chinese will be happy to give them a very decent salary in exchange for the work they're doing. So that's what it is. A nation that doesn't treat its people right will be betrayed. Many of the people who have who, who have not been treated by right by the nation will still have some self-respect and some love for the nation that even if my nation betrayed me, I will not betray the nation. But there will always be this 1% or 2% of people who will be will, willing to betray the nation. In any society, a certain percentage Let's say out of 1 lakh people, you may have 5 people or 10 people in any society who have criminal tendencies and who, who will be prone to betraying the nation. right? It's, it's, it's a statistical certainty that a certain percentage of the population will have such tendencies. Now, so, so it's certainly likely that in a big pool of pilots in the UK, if so many of them or, or X number of them, N number of them, X number of them have been laid off because of the quota system, it's, it's quite likely that if you approach them, if you're Chinese, if you approach these people with a, with a lucrative pay package for a certain period of time that you work with us for, let's say, three years, you're going to give you this money and you give us your, you transfer expertise to us, some of them will be tempted to do it. So that's what's happened. And that's happened entirely because of the policies of, policies of, the, of the UK and various Western militaries, because now they have various diversity quotas and gender quotas and God knows what other quotas. I don't, I don't know what it is. But it, this is the root cause of this phenomenon that you're witnessing here. All right. Pankaj Kumar Tyagi says, is India's current geo geographical size big enough to attain and retain a genuine superpower status? Uh, you, I, I, mean, I get these superpower questions like, multiple times a day. I typically don't take them, but let's let's take this for a change. So is India's current geographical size big enough to attain and retain a genuine superpower status? Look at the size of India. It is enormous. Now ask, now answer me this question. Was the UK's size, geographical size, big enough to retain and attain and retain a genuine superpower status. The UK is a tiny speck on the map compared to India. And yet it was able to become a great empire, the largest empire that the world has ever seen until the US empire. So does it have anything to do with size? The UK is this little, tiny little speck on the map. They became a superpower. India is way larger than the UK. Let's take another example. In 1180, Mongolia was was a bunch of, of, of ragtag tribes fighting each other. They had no status in the local region, let alone in the world. And yet, 40 years later, they were a global superpower. Their leader, Chinggis Khan, conquered more land in 20 years than Roman emperors conquered in 200 years. Right? So the size of your territory, the size of your geography has nothing to do with whether you can become a superpower or not. It's about creating the right system. It's about having the right leadership. You can become a superpower nearly overnight if you are able to create the right system, a, a meritorious system, a, merit, a system that respects merit, and if you have the right leadership. It can happen nearly overnight if you do this. So please stop thinking in terms of geography. What does it take to become a superpower? 
a superpower is a nation that controls most of the world's resources resources what are resources we have spoken about this before raw materials petroleum products mm -hmm. oil gas minerals metals agriculture all these things so how do you control these resources by creating the supply chains and by owning the supply chains you have to create the infrastructure you have to create railroads railways you have to create maritime trade routes and you have to ensure that you are able to defend the all the infrastructure you've created that's why that, that's why a superpower needs a massive military to safeguard the infrastructure that it creates that's the real reason why a superpower needs a massive military right so you need a huge maritime force merchant navy and military navy you need an air force you need to own all the supply chains you need to own the world's reserve currency these are the things that it that it takes to create a genuine superpower you it doesn't matter how large or how small you are the size doesn't matter it's the ability to create the system and the ability to defend the system that matters and that comes from having the right system in place and the right leadership in place india can become in, and of course if you are larger it's easier to become a superpower so actually india is in a much better position than the uk was or any other or mongolia was you know so india's geographical size it's is it big enough it's way bigger than it needed to become a genuine superpower it's all about creating the right system and having the right leaders in position we may be on that path perhaps one hopes so yeah okay multiple choice question yes sir gullible indian says what does abhijit chavda want to see how does how do i want to see india in 2050 choose one a a technologically advanced nation or b a culturally rich nation i'm going to take option c a materially prosperous nation what does it mean a nation with a huge gdp output if by 2050 india is the world's largest gdp is india has the world's largest share of the gdp in excess of what the us and china has that's that's what i would like to see because without being materially prosperous without being a prosperous or rich nation without money you cannot be technologically technologically advanced it's impossible to be technologically advanced without having a high amount of prosperity and once again without having a high amount of prosperity it is impossible to be culturally rich look at all the poor nations in the world what culture do you see there they may have had a great culture in the past but when you are poor your culture is unimportant there is no focus or emphasis on the culture the only focus is on survival understand that so what i would like to see is india retaining regaining its historical position as the world's largest economy that's what i would like to see by 2050 if we do that then we will certainly be the most technologically advanced nation and we will also be a culturally rich nation for both a for both num uh, option 1 and 2 uh, and to be possible you need to first be materially pro pro prosperous so by 2050 i would like to see india become once again the world's largest economy that's what i would like to see saurabh a uh, saurabh my friend asks lots of good questions uh, these days we are focusing more on geopolitics i am not able to take so many of these but i appreciate your questions saurabh and here's one of those so the question is how old is indian astronomy are there any rough estimations of it and how 
good or bad was where ancient Indians in astronomy, as lots of people think, Jyotish is pseudoscience. The thing they missed is what they call pseudoscience is Jyotish Fal and all. Jyotish is mathematical approach. Okay, the question I'm going to answer is how old is Indian astronomy? What evidence do we have of Indian astronomy? All our great libraries have been destroyed and burned. So all of our, most of our ancient texts have evaporated. And yet, we have some evidence, archaeological evidence. So let's take a look at the archaeological evidence, strangely enough, of Indian astronomy. Imagine that, archaeological evidence of astronomy. So let's take a look at this uh, article, this paper. Uh, it's, what is it called? Yeah, let me put that on the screen. So let's take a look at the oldest possible advance uh, evidence of Indian astronomy. This is an article, a paper that is available on the TIFR website, Tata Institute of Fundamental Research, Mumbai. It's one of India's premier uh, physics research institutes. So this is a paper that was published there by three of their scientists. Yes. Uh, TIFR, etc. One of them is from Potsdam in Germany and so on and so forth. So, it says the oldest sky chart with supernova record. And if you go here, this is a photograph of a stone carving from the Kashmir region in India. Uh, this stone carving is dated to, uh, it's it's very old and it, it uh, depicts a hunting scene. It's, it's a stone carving which depicts a hunting scene of two hunters and two animals and two suns, two suns in the sky. Now, what does this mean? Why are there two suns in the sky? Let's take a look at what this means. Yeah. So these are not two suns. It is the sun indeed. And it's a supernova. A supernova is an exploding star. So finding the signatures of exploding stars. Uh, so about 50 years ago in the Borzahama region of Kashmir in India, Archaeologists uncovered a stone carving of two hunters, a bull, and two beaming discs in the sky. The carving was pre presumed to be a hunting scene under a pair of bright stars at the local zenith. But a team of astrophysicists in India and Germany uh, had other ideas. One by one, they assessed and ruled out various theories about the origin of the scene. It was that it was an illustration of the sun and the moon, a pair of stars or comets or asteroids in the sky. One Only one theory seemed to fit the evidence. The object depicted on the stone carving appears to be the supernova HB9, an exploding star that shone a hundred times as brightly as Venus about 6,500 years ago. And if that is correct, then it is the oldest recorded evidence uh, observation of a supernova by humans. Alright, so this is the oldest recorded evidence of a supernova by humans. So that is one way to date how old Indian astronomy is. It is at least 6,500 years old. So people were observing the night sky. They were drawing st st uh, star charts. The animals depicted in that in that scene are, are not actual animals. These are constellations. Constellations. This seems to depict the constellation of the hunter, Orion most likely. Yes. Uh, so these are, this is not an actual animal. It's it's a constellation. These two, there's a dog and there's, there's another animal that's being, being hunted. So it's a sky chart. So Indians... 6,500 years ago, we're, we're drawing sky charts on rocks. Now, um, there's also the record of the Greek uh, the Greek ambassador to India, Megasthenes, who was the ambassador of the Greeks in, in Patliputra during the Mauryan times. Yeah. 
in, in the court of uh, Emperor Chandragupta Maurya. So Megasthenes recorded in his writings that the Indians of that time, they reckoned time according to a calendar that, that, that was called the Saptarshi calendar that dated back to 6,600 something BCE. 6,600 something BCE. That's more than 8,500 years before today. So Indians had been reckoning time through a proper calendar since from about 8,500 years before today. More than that. And to create a proper calendar is not easy. A calendar is based on the observations of the night sky, of the various celestial objects, especially the, the movements of the various solar system objects. The sun, the moon, the various planets, all of that has to be studied in, in extraordinary detail to understand the patterns and regularities of the solar system, of the entire system. right? And it's based on that that you understand how long it takes for one year and what are the divisions and that. And that's how you create a, a calendar. And this calendar was incredibly accurate. It was better than the calendar that is used today, the Christian calendar calendar that we use today. So eight and a half, more than eight and a half thousand years ago, Indians had already created the world's best calendar. So they must have been observing the night sky and the solar system for hundreds of years before that, maybe thousands of years before that. So that's how ancient Indian astronomy is. And whatever astronomical data the West acquired through through the Arabs was all data that had been uh, acquired from India, right? For instance, all the all, all the astronomical data that was uh, acquired that was used by Johannes Kepler to deduce his three laws of planetary motion. All of the data came from India, and so on. So India is the birthplace of science. India is the birthplace of mathematics, of astronomy, of calculus of every, of philosophy, of every meaningful pursuit humanity knows. It's all been acquired, appropriated from India. It's been repackaged with Western names. And today we all Indians believe that the West is the best and in India has never been anything, which is completely wrong. It's because of our education system that we are all misled like this. There was a time when even I must have believed much of this. Yeah. So uh, please understand that India is the birthplace of all the sciences of philosophy, of history, of writing, of, of astronomy, of mathematics, of the sciences, of, 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 of pharmacology, toxicology, of botany, everything. Yeah. India is the, is the original cradle of civilization and of civilized thought. Okay, Mazar says, what's the contribution of Sindh towards Hinduism? And why do the people of present-day India consider Sindh as an alien territory, despite the fact that Sindh, that Sindh was once the epicenter or, or, of the Sindhu uh, Saraswati civilization? Okay, what's the contribution of Sindh towards Hinduism? See, uh, like Mazar says, Sindh was once the epicenter or the center of gravity or whatever you want to call it, of the Sindhu Saraswati phase of Indian civilization. Indian civilization transcends the Sindhu Saraswati phase. It's it's It goes back before that. And even after the Sindhu Saraswati phase ended, Indian civilization still continued. It still continues today in a certain form. So when the Sindhu Saraswati phase of Indian civilization was at its, at its peak. Sindh was more or less, to a large extent, the, the center of, of gravity of the place because one of the great rivers of one of the two great rivers of this of this region was the Sindhu, right? The other was the Saraswati, which no longer flows today. So 
as a consequence of that, see the Sindhu Saraswati phase of Indian civilization was centered around the Sapta Sindhu region, the seven great rivers in western and northern India, which encompassed parts of Afghanistan, uh, it encompassed Jammu and Kashmir, uh, it encompassed all of Pakistan and, and Balochistan, and also uh, Punjab, Haryana, Gujarat, Rajasthan. Uh, parts of Madhya Pradesh, parts uh, northern parts of Maharashtra, and all that. It's, it was an enormous geographical territory, and this was essentially one of the cradles of Indian civilization. The Ganga Yamuna Valley region was also one of the cradles of Indian civilization. So, um, and if you look at the archaeological evidence from this region, let's say around the Sindhu River, the various archaeological sites, you find a, a huge amount of evidence of what we today consider to be. Uh, Hindu cultural artifacts. You find swastikas, you find shivlingas, you you find uh, statuettes of ladies with uh, vermilion that, uh, in their forehead, you know, Mang Sindur, that, that thing. Uh, you find so many evidences of what you would call Hinduism. The, the British uh, archaeologist who was the head of the ASI at the time, in the 1920s, John Marshall, he said that the... Uh, the culture of this of the so-called Harappan civilization was so distinctively Hindu that it it is scarcely uh, you can scarcely uh, differentiate from present-day existing Hinduism. So that is the contribution of of the Saraswati Sindhu region, the Sapta Sindhu region, including Sindh towards Hinduism. Yeah, it, it was I wouldn't call it the birthplace of Hinduism, but it's a place where Hinduism developed a lot and flourished a lot. I mean, you find yoga also there and so on. Yeah, so so very very culturally rich region, and even after the the slow decline of the Saraswati Sindhu phase of Indian civilization, the, the place was still inhabited. The Sindhu still remained, and there were various great cities in the region, including Meenanagar, which is present day Karachi. Yeah, Meenanagar was, was one of the uh, centers, one of the capitals of the of the great Mahakshatrapas of India, the Western satraps, including uh, people like Nahapana and Chashtana and other great uh, great kings of the region and so on. So yeah, Sindh has contributed a lot. It's been one of, I mean, India is incomplete without Sindh. Make no mistake about it. India is incomplete without Sindh. India is incomplete without the Sindhu River. The Sindhu River is one of the, one of the unalienable and integral components of Indian civilization. Indian civilization is incomplete without the Sindh region and the and the Sindhu River. So it it is it is it is unfinished business. Yes, we will we will obviously this this is territory that is this is ancestral territory of all Indians. Yeah. All Indians would have had ancestors who lived in this territory. Guarantee 100 percent So this is ancient Indian territory. It is our ancient heritage and we will reacquire it and and the people of the region are our own people so it's not like we will evict them or anything we will reintegrate this territory with india in the future in, when the time is right why do the people of present day india consider sindh to be alien territory well it's currently part of pakistan temporarily albeit but it's currently part of pakistan so people who have grown up after the so called independence after partition they would see it as part of another nation it's it's but natural, and because our education system in India doesn't teach us the right things, that's why we see it as, as a foreign country. Pakistan is not Pakistan is not a foreign country. Afghanistan and Bangladesh and, and Sri Lanka etc. are not foreign countries. The people are the same as us. Yeah, so it's a matter of time. It's uh, it's uh, the unfinished uh, legacy, the unfinished finished business left over of history, and it will be taken care of by maybe the current leadership, maybe a future leadership, and it will be done in a way that's best for all people of the region and 
all our brothers and sisters who live in the entire Indian subcontinent. So I don't see Sindh as alien territory. I am sure lots of other people do, which is unfortunate and it should not be the case. All right, let's take some other quick questions. What else do we have? Akan Bharat says, is it really true that being vegetarian or vegan is better than being a meat eater? The Mongols who conquered a significant portion of Eurasia were heavy meat and dairy consumers. And so were the Yamnaya invaders of Europe who were on average six feet tall, incredibly strong and muscular. Does consuming meat give you any advantage over just vegetables? See, let's, let's look at it from a different perspective. The Mongols were nomads. The Mongols were nomads. It was the, they, they lived a nomadic lifestyle. And they lived in this frozen part of Eurasia where the temperatures go down to minus 30 or, or even worse in winter. And in summer, it must be like, you know, barely above zero. I, I know it's reasonably pleasant in summer, maybe 10, 15 degrees. Sometimes it may be higher, but that's a very brief phase. And very little grows in this place. You, you will get, even in, in parts of India, like Ladakh, the only things that grow in this region in these regions are, are root vegetables like turnips and potatoes and any onions. You don't get green vegetables there. So if you are a nomadic uh, culture who, who depend on moving from place to place every, every few weeks or months, there is no way for you to grow vegetables. And even if you try to grow vegetables, almost nothing grows there except root vegetables. So the only way you can survive and the only thing you can use for subsistence, subsistence is meat and dairy. So being nomads, the Mongols made sure that they ate lots of meat and dairy because that's the only thing that made sense for them. That's the only way they were able to survive and prosper. And the same goes for the Yamnaya. The Yamnaya were the inhabitants of the, of the Eurasian steppe, the steppe region, the, the Kazakhstan, from all the way from Mongolia to, to, to the Ukraine. You know, the, the frozen heartland, the steppe region of Eurasia. So the Yamnaya themselves mostly lived in this region and they were also nomads. They were horse riding conquerors. They went from place to place. They never stayed in one place too long. Yes. And so they also they had the same lifestyle. And if you eat large amounts of dairy and meat, lots, lots of protein, and if you have a very vigorous lifestyle that's, that's based on, on riding horses all day and conquering and pillaging and doing whatever warriors and nomads do, then obviously your body structure will adapt as a, as a, as a result of that. Yeah. I mean, you find skeletons in the Ganga Valley in India whose average height is 6 feet 1 inches. That's from 30,000 years ago. So even they may have had that sort of lifestyle. It's all about the lifestyle plus genetics, plus diet. So it's not about meat being better. It's about meat being the only thing that made sense to them because that's the kind of lifestyle they lived. So they had to travel long distances every day and the only ready food they had available to them was their were, were their herds of livestock most likely and that's why they depended on that whether it's the yamnaya or the mongols or the huns or the huns maybe even the skeetians you know the skeetians who today many indians would have some skeetian ancestry the skeetians themselves had ancient indian ancestry and so on so i don't think consuming meat gives you any major advantage over just vegetables meat is like processed vegetables because you know herbivorous animals eat lots of vegetable, vegetarian food, whether it's grass or whatever else, and that's converted into protein and all the minerals, etc. are, are incorporated, in, incorporated into the protein and so on. That's how it is. So if you are an athlete, if you're a bodybuilder, you want to put on muscle mass very quickly, maybe it makes sense to eat meat because that's the shortest 
you know the shortest time period for acquiring the kind of um, protein that you would other otherwise need to acquire over a longer longer period of time from vegetables but vegetables too give you all the proteins you need provided you know what to eat and in what way to eat it's a whole science dietary science in athletics and sports and all that so i overall vegetables are i think they give you a lot of fiber they're better for digestion they give you lots of phytonutrients and other things i think the best kind of lifestyle the best kind of diet is a good amount of protein you should fulfill your daily protein requirements in a lot of vegetables because vegetables are great for for overall health for mental clarity for fighting off cancer and all these things so yeah it depends like that i i don't think there's anything right or wrong about this sort of diet or that sort of diet in indian culture in hinduism it is indeed said that it is morally better it's it's a it's a it's it's a, a superior lifestyle not to eat meat because you're not causing any harm or any pain to other living beings but even in hinduism there's no taboo that you cannot eat meat apart from beef right so um it's not better it, it depends on what results you want to achieve if you want if you if you are 70 kilos if your weight is 70 kilos and you want to become a bodybuilder and you want to reach the 85 kilo mark in let's say 15 months then maybe it makes sense for you to eat meat perhaps perhaps i'm i'm, I'm just saying perhaps that's one hypothetical possibility but you could also acquire the same protein through through legumes or paneer or, or milk or whatever so there are lots of different options available there's no right way or wrong way everybody's body is different everybody's metabolism is different and you have to over time understand your body and what's best for it and do what is best according to that that's what i would say right <clears throat> Somnath Abhishek says, "How was your experience on the debate on the popular news channel?" So yeah, a couple of a few days ago, I was on a debate on uh, on prime time on the Republic TV with Arnab Goswami. The debate was about uh, the legacy of the great, magnificent Prime Minister of India, the one and only Mr. Nehru. And yeah, I think I was one of the first people who spoke on the debate. I spoke for about two minutes. I said what I had to say, and then the debate went in various directions. And I was able to speak only once on the debate because there are lots of people on that. And typically on these debates, what happens is that if you want to be heard, you have to kind of speak over other people, interrupt people, and try to barge in and all that. And I, I did not think it was appropriate for me to do that uh, at that point in time. Yeah, I I did. I I had some more points. I obviously you know you all know what points I want. I would have wanted to make. I was definitely not able to make all the points. I was able to speak a bit about the geopolitical implications and geopolitical angle of Mr. Nehru's actions. Uh, there was more that I could have obviously said. I speak a lot, but yeah, it was the first time. in like two or three years that i was in republic i was in republic once before uh, in 2019 during the Bal- i think during the balakot air strikes or something yeah so yeah it it's it's it was good to be back on uh, republic it was a very brief uh, very brief involvement on my part just a couple of minutes i did say i did share a few thoughts i think it's available on twitter and other places if you want to see it just a couple of minutes overall it was a good experience and let's see how it is in the future yeah okay let's take one more question henry steven says how to handle success and appreciation well you would not be asking me this question unless you have become successful so first of all congratulations on succeeding so when it comes to success you need to understand you need to have your own definition of what is success that these are the parameters that would constitute success for me so if i do this 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 and i get these results then that is what i would consider success so first of all when you achieve those results that you are hoping for that 
you should understand that this is the definition from my perspective of success. Secondly, you have to analyze how you were able to reach that stage. Maybe in the past you tried and failed, but now you've been able to succeed. So try to analyze how, what process you followed and what steps you took in, in order to be able to achieve what you call success. And then try to try to make a process or system of that so that you can repeatedly achieve that success. And then maybe you can try to find ways of, if you, let's say, let's say it's about earning money let's say hypothetically it's about earning money let's say you were successful in earning 1 lakh rupees so then you must ask yourself how do i first of all replicate this and earn the same amount of money every month and then as a next step how do i 10 times that so so now that i've been able to replicate this regularly that i can succeed earning so and so amount of money per month how do i take it to the next uh, next level how do i make it twice that amount or 10 times the amount and then lastly the thing is that don't ever allow success to go to your ego go to your head some people they are like oh yes i have arrived i'm the big deal now that should never ever happen you should treat success and uh, you know there's this famous quote that you should treat success and failure as imposters they are all temporary. Success will come and go. Failure will come and go. But you have to remain who you are. Don't allow it to affect you and change who you are. And don't allow it to make you an egomaniac or whatever it is. Some people, you know, success reveals people's character. And uh, some people remain humble. And they remain grounded even after achieving whatever it is that they call success. And some people, the moment there is a little whiff of success, they became like, you know, they, they, they become all different. And they become egoistic and arrogant and all that. So success, uh, it reveals who you, you really are. So I would say that whatever happens, success or failure, don't allow it to affect you too much. Success comes and goes, failure comes and goes. But if you are able to succeed, then understand how you succeeded and try to replicate that. And then once you're able to replicate that on demand, try to understand how to take it to the next level and never ever allow it to affect you from an ego perspective. Remain who you are, remain humble, remain grounded and keep on working. Because no matter how much you succeed, there'll be hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe millions of people who have succeeded way, way, way more than you have ever succeeded. Maybe if you have succeeded at this level, there will be millions of people who have succeeded a hundred times bigger than you. So don't allow it to affect your ego. Stay humble, stay grounded, keep working and always have a big objective in mind which you're working towards. That's what I would say. I think we have gone uh, way beyond the two our mark let me take one or two let me take one or two what do we call it live chat questions live chat questions um um what do we have beast man says indians need to focus on execution not on speech yes yes sir yes beast man you are absolutely 100 right talk is just hot air talk doesn't matter Work, work hard, execute, 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 work hard, work smart, keep on working and ignore the words. Right. What else do we have? Was was Thor fat? <laughs> was Thor fat? Uh, Thor was not fat. Thor is Indra, the great god Indra. Nowadays, Indians look at Indra as this, this, uh, this funny character, you know, the god of rain. The God who sits in this palace around um, with the his his uh, devoted following around him. But in the old days, during the Vedic days, Indra was the great god of war, the, the mightiest of the gods, the god who, who who defeated the great sea serpent, Vritra. So he was a great warrior, and he had two main weapons. One was the hammer, which was called Vajra, 
which is, which is a hammer, which is it's a physical object. And the other meaning of Vajra is the thunderbolt. So it has dual meaning in Sanskrit. So the hammer and, th- and the thunderbolt. The, so this was Indra, the mightiest of all the gods. And Thor is nothing but Indra. And so is Jupiter. So is Zeus. These are nothing but the same god. And Thor was never fat. You watch these silly, ridiculous movies that, that Marvel puts out these days. You're going to think, <laughs> God knows what. But yeah, Thor was never, ever, ever, ever fat. All right. Um, anything else? Do we have any other interesting question? Any other interesting question? Thor, Love and Thunder. Uh, have I? Did I watch? Kan, I'm, I'm not sure what's the pronunciation of this thing. Is, the, is it Kantara? Kantara? I'm not sure. I haven't watched it. I've had no time to watch it. Mm, I hear incredibly good things about it. I also hear some other perspectives. I'm not sure if I can find the time. I would like to watch it, but I'm not sure if that time is coming anytime soon because my forthcoming week is going to be very busy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How to in- improve f- storytelling skills? I have no idea. <laughs> um, how do you improve storytelling storytelling skills? Um, people tell me I'm a reasonably good storyteller. I have, I'm, I have no idea. I just speak. Uh, I'm sure you can deconstruct storytelling into... It's about maintaining tension and not giving out the... the not revealing the big thing until the end, I suppose. And then structuring the story properly. And ensuring that there is always tension and there is always suspense so that the people don't feel bored. I think that's the gist of it. And then it's all about practice, practice, practice and see the audience's reaction. The more you practice, the better you get. And obviously you need feedback from the audience. And once you realize that the audience is hooked and you are able to replicate that again and again, that's when you have become a good storyteller. All right. I think we are done for today. Thank you very much, all of you. Thank you very much for all the questions, for your viewership. And uh, let's keep doing this in the future. This coming weekend, once again, I am not going to be doing a live stream because I will be in Jaipur participating in the uh, annual session of the Jaipur Dialogues. You can catch me there. There will be live streams from Jaipur. So you can catch me on that. But next weekend, no live streams. And we will resume the live streams on the weekend after that. So thank you very much for everything. Until next time, I bid you a very good day, a very good week. Take care. Bye.